Hi there. This is City Book and Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grumian, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Diving into part two of our interview with Andrew Carnavas, a very interesting musician who works with kids, he works with adults, he teaches music. We're going to be talking today about some real struggles he's had. He got a devastating medical diagnosis a few years ago that's changed his life and his career in many ways, and he's got a lot to say about that. But before we do that, I'd like to introduce our guest co-host today, Luke Bronner. Welcome, Luke. Yes, hey, thanks. How's it going? Good. Luke produces our show on a regular basis, and I'm lucky enough to have him as a guest co-host today in our chat with Andrew. You've been podcasting for a while. It's very close to your heart. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the H, Mm -hmm. and I want to ask you about 30 Pop. What's the status of the H? Why do you do the H? What's the history there? And 30 Pop is just super cool. How did that idea come about, and what are you doing with that? Yeah, so the H, I'll start there. I mentioned last week that when I started podcasting, I came out the gate with two shows. A third show followed within a year or so. And then I started thinking, like, what are things that I want to explore creatively that I'm not able to do with these shows that I have? And they were all conversational, like two people on a mic, three people on a mic talking to each other. And I thought, I really want to explore what narrative, long-form narrative feels like. I also wanted to figure out like a way to make money doing this, frankly. And so I have never had like massive shows. None of my shows are huge. And I thought, well, what's the thing that would make it so that I can actually monetize? And that is that like if I were to connect an audience over something that they already love, in this case, it's Houston. People love this city. I love this city. I moved here thinking I would hate it. And I fell very quickly in love with it. And so I thought, well, that's the answer. I want to do long form narrative about the people who make this city great. And so that was sort of the idea. I didn't really know what it would feel like until I started doing it. And people responded. I mean, people really, really enjoyed the show. I mean, that's how we got connected in the beginning. And so I just sort of went all in with local. We've got spinoffs now coming from that show, which has been really fun. So so cool. And 30 Pop? You know, 30 Pop started as a very different idea. 30 Pop is sort of a release valve for me, where a lot of the content that I'm producing is sort of heavy in nature. Even the H, it's a pretty heavy to hear someone's entire life story and to really try to draw inspiration from it. I used to have a show called Diego Sports where it was like two or three minute episodes of people explaining sports to me one question at a time. And it was just fun. It was silly. And it served as this like pressure release valve for me and for the network. And so 30 Pop became that. It was like an opportunity to just basically what we do with the show is every week we look back exactly 30 years of what was happening that week in pop culture. So throughout 2020, we've been looking at the year 1990, you know, 2019 was 1989. So getting to interview folks like Amy Stock, who was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. We talked to John Cusack and Ione Sky about Say Anything, all these things as they turned 30 years old. Interviewed a bunch of cast members from Fresh Prince this year. It's just really fun for me to get to have lighter conversations, but with people who I would otherwise never have access to. And so that's just been a really fun show to produce. And I guess it's getting some exposure and some reach outside of Houston, because unlike many of your other shows, it's not tied to Houston. Oh yeah. It's not Houston centric in any way. I mean, we have a good, strong Houston audience, but the audience for that show and with all of our non Houston shows are very widespread. So they're great shows. Good luck with them. And thanks for being here today. Of course. Let's jump back into our chat with Andrew. 
back again with Andrew Carnavis, a great musician and musical educator. A lot to talk about. We had some fun with him last week. And I want to start off, Andrew, with a a heavier topic. You got some devastating health news not that long ago that uh, one of the things I mentioned when we were talking last week was you know, you've had some uh, a lot of detours in your life, and some of them have, things, have been things you, you've chosen. You were uh, in the medical field, and you d- decided to shift into uh, a full-time creative work. Um, some of the changes you've had to roll with lately have been thrust upon you. Can, you. can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how it started and what's going on? Absolutely. So back in 2015, I had a performance at Discovery Green, And, um, the month before that performance, I was traveling all month. And during that time, I started to get some numbness in my right hand. And I thought it was just carpal tunnel from playing guitar and, and sending out booking emails all the time. Um, because, uh, those were the things I was doing a lot at that time. And, uh, I was getting ready to come out with my new Andy Rue album, Color Your World, back then in 2015 and my um my right hand went numb and then my left hand started going numb too and so i just thought okay well maybe it's affecting both my hands now but then over the course of a month my entire body from the neck down went numb to where it felt like um you know when you sleep on your hand if you sit on your hand or something for too long and it tingles um, felt like my entire body was just tingling like that from the neck down all the time. And I didn't know really what was wrong with me. And it took, um, it took some time to figure out that I was diagnosed a few months later with, um, multiple sclerosis. So it was a major adjustment for me to go from just being perfectly healthy. I was 31 uh, when I was diagnosed. And the, uh, the thing about it is that all that time that I spent working in the medical center, you know, I was working with patients who have scleroderma, which is a an illness that can basically, in its more um, serious state, it, it'll cause scar tissue to develop on your lungs. It affects your your um, ability to breathe, and, and it can cause you to die. And so, and there there's no reason why um, people have it. It's not like they smoked for 30 years and now suddenly they have lung cancer or something like that. It's just something that has no known cause um, yet. They don't know if it's genetic, all these things. And so I would meet these patients, hundreds of them, for our study, and they would tell me their stories. And they had these stories of just waking up one day and my arms are stuck like this. And I don't know what's wrong. And I go to the hospital and they tell me I have scleroderma, right? So it's this crazy thing. It could happen to anybody. Some of the patients were very um, down on themselves all of the time. And some of the patients with even the most severe symptoms were incredibly optimistic all the time. And so 
I was constantly going through the this emotional state of being really inspired by those patients that had everything against them and they were still able to to hang on to their hope and just feeling completely heartbroken for the patients who who just didn't feel like they could overcome their illness. And that was even with some of the patients that didn't have really severe symptoms. So just the psychology of illness that you experience when you, you're suddenly told that you have something that not a lot of people have and it's not a good thing is a lot to take in. Um, fortunately for me, I had three years to reflect on that before I was diagnosed with MS. And so when I was diagnosed, I quickly decided, well, I'm not going to let the illness define me. I'm not going to let MS run my life. It's going to cause me to make some changes in my life, but I'm a very driven person. I have goals. I have things that I want to achieve. And I'm used to correcting course when my idea of how the world is supposed to work doesn't turn out to be the case and I have to go a different route. And so I decided right away that I was going to be like my optimistic patients and continue to be positive about all of this. So that's really what I've, I've done. Um, I have a really supportive family. They sent me, my sister sent me a lot of nutritional information on um, people with MS. You know, we have different microbiome and your gut and there's all this research going on. And and so being able to change my diet, like eliminating um, gluten and dairy, eating more leafy green vegetables, all these things. So I read all this information completely changed my diet. I used to eat burgers and mac and cheese all the time. Hmm. Um, and now I feel, I feel healthier than I did before because of all these lifestyle changes I've made. I've only had that one major MS attack um, when I was first diagnosed, but since then, you know, from 2015 to now to 2020, I'm, I'm still doing great. Um, you know, I'm on some pretty serious medication that I have to go every month and get a monthly infusion. Um, but all of that starts with the diet. Um, but it is really interesting that I feel like even though I didn't go to medical school, all that time I spent in the med center really prepared me to accept this part of my life. How has it affected you as a songwriter? I think uh, you have an, a, a pretty new record out with Andy Rue and the Kids Music, and I, I believe that some of, some of the songwriting you did for that project was informed by your journey. How does that affect you as a creative person? Yeah, the creative process has changed a lot for me. So back in 2015, as I was saying about that Discovery Green show, when it, my hands and everything had started going numb, I did that show a month later when I could barely feel my hands. I couldn't feel my feet. Um, I didn't know if I, I, I would feel like I had to go to the bathroom. 
um, but I didn't have to. So it's just all these things. Once once your nervous system is affected, it really starts to to make life a little more chaotic. And I made my way through that show, not really being able to feel the fretboard. I had to just kind of palm mute my guitar and play it more like a percussive instrument and sing my songs, rely on my voice. And I, after that, you know, in that, in that time, so that was in September and during that time of, um, September through January, I wasn't performing anymore and I had to really take a minute to get my health figured out. But I started thinking, well, if I'm not able to play guitar anymore and I can just sing, I'm going to have to figure out a new way to make music if I want to keep performing. So that really um, spurred my foray into working with virtual instruments and creating new kinds of music that were not based around the guitar at all. So what would happen if I made an album that had no guitar on it? How would I do that? So I had to learn all about MIDI sequencing and working with different virtual instruments, drum machines, all that stuff. And throughout the course of that, because I had learned it and learned it pretty quickly, I was able to launch Just Add Beats and pass on the knowledge that I had accumulated very quickly because it was almost like I was a kid again. I was learning to make music in a new way. And so having that beginner's approach helped me with my teaching and understanding how a kid might approach learning to make electronic music too. So and that's what just ad beats is. It's the, the educational platform you've created for kids to teach them how to do some of this stuff. We talked about it last week. That's right. And so moving into the new album that I've put out, Rue Cycle, it's a really, uh, it's the new Andy Rue album. It's the third full length album. And this album has virtually no guitar in it. And it took every bit of the uh, past five years from the launch of the Color Your World album, which is my second album, to the launch of Rue Cycle. It's really an accumulation of all of my my knowledge for working with electronic instruments, with uh, mixing and mastering, all of those different things um, that I've picked up. And so, so my songwriting process has really changed from... Um, oh, and, and I can play guitar again. I guess that's another thing to mention. I, well, that's awesome. I, I still play guitar. Um, I, I did lose the ability to play guitar for about six months at the beginning there, and I had to kind of learn over again. Um, and I really actually think, even though I couldn't, I couldn't play very well, I think the, uh, the practice of trying to play guitar actually helped stimulate my nerve function and bring, bring back the feeling in my hands and stuff. So, um, so it's, it really is a kind of form of music therapy, just playing an instrument. And, um, but yeah, so I, I, I've made the Ruth cycle album and I'm really proud of it. And the, and the songs have gone from, um, the theme for the album is uh, there's a call to action on the cover that says, let's take care of our planet and ourselves. And all of the songs are based around those two things. So uh, Rue Cycle, of course, is a play on Recycle. So there are songs all about um, 
reduce, reuse, recycle. There's a, a paper airplane song. So we start to really investigate um, how we can reuse certain materials and reduce things and, um, and how we can take care of ourselves and stay motivated. Um, there's a song called Get Up that is all about that, getting up and getting out in the world and doing your part. And um, it was just a really fun album to make. And, and the creative process for making an album is, is my favorite part, I think, of the, uh, the project. I still love, I love performing and I love being out in front of the kids and sharing the album with everybody. But as a, as a creator, um, just knowing how much work went into the, the process of learning how to make a new out type of album and changing the way that I write songs. Uh, I also did some co-writing with Grace, with my partner, um, on this album too. So she, she co-wrote some of the songs. And so she it's a musician a, as well or vocalist or, um, she, she was a songwriter on the, on the album. So she doesn't sing on it, but she, um, she just helps with the lyrics. So, so that's okay. a good example for a creative process on the songwriting side. I might have a great chorus and the first verse figured out and then I'll bring it to grace if I'm just stuck on that second verse and she'll help me knock around some ideas. And sometimes the song will change. Um, you know, I think Get Up, for example, started as more of an exercise song. So you've got the, you've got to get up and move around. And then, um, and then it started turning into more of a song about, I think, empowerment and using your voice too. And a lot of that came from grace, you know, being able to um, take a stance is in the song. And those, those pieces, I think, are things that have made the album so much better. It's, it's helped me grow as a songwriter. A lot of times if, when you do co-writing on songs, it can be, to me, it's a little bit trickier when you're working with two musicians versus a lyricist. And then I'm kind of driving the music side of things it can be tough to negotiate. Um, what pieces you're going to use from each contributor. But um, I've had a really natural collaboration with Grace. I've had some, you know, some awkward um, attempts at collaboration with other songwriters that I really respect or work together on something and then it just won't, won't vibrate. I think awkward is the only sort of co-writing experiences I've had with other <laughs> writers. That's, that is the most uncomfortable scenario to put, for a creative person to put yourself in a place where your job is to like be open and vulnerable and try to like access something emotionally with another person who you often don't know. I mean, I just can't imagine a more uncomfortable scenario. I think Andrew creatively. might just be an extra nice to grace right now because I understand it's her birthday. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. It's her birthday today. That's right. No, but, but, um, you're absolutely right. I think, um, the other, the other thing is, when you're in the uh, so Grace does a million other things too. Um, she's a CEO of Impact Hub, um, which is uh, working with entrepreneurs and startups and helping them with their social impact. And um, 
And that's, and she has shaped so much of how I think about my business and things that I do. But the fact that she has this varied experience and she's, she does all kinds of other things. Um, you know, writing songs with me is like a crossword puzzle for her. It's just a, a minute for her to escape her daily headspace versus working with, um, you know, a, another seasoned songwriter who maybe, you know, just when you get into things at the beginning, like if you're, you sit down and you have to have a conversation about the split for the song, you know, that you're going to write together, mm-hmm. you don't have a song yet, but you need to, you need to get the business side of things done first so that everybody can be comfortable. But sometimes when you have a really artistic person who does not care about the business piece so much, it's um, it becomes intimidating and uncomfortable for them because they suddenly go, well, this this guy knows more about the business than I do. And then you've lost the vibe right there. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Um, so you have to find that balance between, hey, we're just going to write a song together. It'll be fun. And the Nashville factory of like, oh, we're going to crank out six songs today that are going to fit this, uh, yeah, you know, this muffin pan for songwriting. So yeah. so it's um, I, I tell people about Houston when we talk about, um, you know, the music industry, there's really no infrastructure here at all. Um, for things like touring and um, publicity and management, it's virtually non-existent. But the um, what I do say is that it's a great place to make a record because there are so many amazing musicians that have other jobs um, that will play on your record for uh, a lower price than what you would have to pay if you were going to go to Nashville. Um, but it's a very hard place to start a band, like a touring band, because yeah. we're landlocked um, to to do any kind of coastal touring. It's it's a, a lot of uh, it's expensive, very very expensive. So um, so those are kind of the things, and and everybody has their job, so they're not going to leave their job to be in a band with you. So. Um, which makes bands like the Suffers even more impressive. Like if you're a musician in town and you know what it takes in this city to like get on the map musically, a band like Suffers is really impressive because they're right here too, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that and that's um that's what it takes, you know. I think um it's it's basically a startup. You know, if you have that kind of mindset and people like Cam have that mindset, you know. Um where they they did a fundraiser, they raised like fifty thousand dollars to to launch their record and get on the road, and and it takes every bit of that that kind of money when you have a band that big, um, all the overhead, the promotion to really do things the right way. I mean, that's that's the kind of budget you're looking at. Having merch, just starting on the right foot, and. And it's very similar to other startups and raising capital to get your venture off the ground. So, so those are all things that that I've certainly learned about. But, um, you know, I don't know about I didn't know about those things when I was uh, 24 years old, um, and most 24 year olds don't either. So. So you know it's uh, but like you look at a band like Portugal the Man. Um, 
I think they're the they're the example of what a band has to do to make it today. Is if you're thinking about the whole arc of becoming a national act, um, you know, those guys put out like six albums in their first six years, and they're from I think Wasilla, Canada or Alaska. And they they were doing 200-something shows a year at that time and sleeping on floors and playing. You know, they came and played the Meridian here in town, and then they came back through and did Verizon and then all all of that stuff. So you look at bands like that that are five um, five people who are just committed to basically being homeless um, to, to get out and, and get it off the ground. That's really what it takes. I mean, it is a, a relentless industry. And the second you stop touring, you're losing money. So um, right now, what we're seeing is um, it's just incredible how much, um, how much the industry is going to be reshaped right now with uh, everybody stuck at home. But um, I, I also think it's a good time for artists to take back some of their creative control to um, restructure the show models that have existed in the past. You know, I think after this, a lot of artists are going to think twice about doing that 400-mile drive for $400. Mm-hmm. They're going to want more. Um, they're going to start to see I can reach a global audience from home. Like we can do these more of these streams and we can build up our, our um, social networks and start engaging more brand deals. So all of those things, all of that, that building, I feel like you're going to see a lot less touring. Um, not even, even after it's safer for bands to get back on the road, I still think you're going to see a lot less touring now and, and smarter moves at home um, versus the traditional model. And venues are going to have to do better for their artists and, and for their patrons. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It, especially, I think that's true for solo artists because solo artists now can make just as much money hopping online and doing a concert window type concert than traveling to play for even a, you know, even like a coffee house gig. Like you can, bands, it's going to be harder. It's really hard to do a live streamed band show that's, that really showcases the talent of the band. That's that's where live venues, I think, are, are still the only viable solution. But like, it's going to be really interesting, and it's and it's interesting in a city like Houston, where we actually have some really killer venues, but not a huge local music scene. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see like what sort of bands continue to to kind of make their living on the road. I think I'm curious. So music's not the only way that you're involved in sort of the audio space. Can you tell us more about Houston sound library, how that started, what it is? Yeah. So the, the Houston sound library. Um, so one thing leading to another, right. Um, back in, let's see, I think it was, it was 2015 or 2014 when I did the, uh, I think it was 2015 when I did the VR music soundtrack, um, for this game called plenty sky hearth. It's an outdoor by uh, tiny lions games. It's an outdoor game, and um, there's an archery component. And we recorded 
my partner Matt and I, for the project, we went out and recorded all these nature sounds at the Arboretum. And so we recorded the birds and the cicadas and, and frogs, all kinds of wildlife at the Arboretum. And we took those sounds and we and that's what went into the video game. So being able to take the sound of a bird, you know, a mono wave file of a, of a bird chirping and then hand that off to the game designer and they can map the sound and it can fly around your head um, was a really, really fun project to do really at the beginning of, you know, the, the second wave of VR, right? When things just started, um, started coming home with the, the Vive and the Oculus and all that. So, so that was in 2015. And then from working on that, figuring out, okay, this was tech is cheap enough to start bringing it to the kids in the schools. We bring it to the kids in the schools. We're having them go through different audio design challenges. And this entire time, as I'm working more with sound, I'm working on recycle and I'm thinking about, you know, recycling materials and thinking about sounds and how sound is something that we capture and we manipulate, but we can repurpose it, we recycle it, and we can reuse it in different songs, right? So you can have the same kick drum sound in one song as another song if you're sequencing it or sampling it. So then I got this idea for the Houston Sound Library. I applied for a grant from the Houston Arts Alliance to create a free library that was um, made of sounds that were recorded all over Houston. So... I narrowed it down to the historic wards of Houston so that I wasn't having to cover too large of an area. Um, but I recorded all these found objects, um, recorded certain landmarks and places like Allen's Landing, so recording the water splashing over at Allen's Landing, and um, put that library up for free so musicians can use it uh, people doing interactive art installations can use the library for free so it's just an opportunity where i had gone from recording sounds in in the arboretum and making our my own little library and putting them in that video game to helping kids learn how to make their own sounds and and then also learning from them just in how they they would use equipment differently for me. So learning all these new techniques and then deciding, okay, uh, you know, learning as a working on the Andy Rue album that anything could be an instrument. So I could make a drum kit out of a, just one piece of paper. You know, I could crumble it. I can rip it. I can slap it, all of those things. And so having that mindset that anything could be an instrument being able to go around the city and collect all those sounds, so in a bigger geographic area than just the Arboretum, and being able to share that with the public so they can use it in their own projects, and that we can send these Houston sounds really all over the world, anybody could use them, was something really interesting to me. So it was just um, really, and, and it was my own um, self-prescribed audio design challenge. You know, what does Houston sound like? Can you, how much can you capture in a year 
um, to to create a sound library. So I knew I wouldn't be able to to definitively say what Houston sounds like because it's it's too big, it's too too diverse and amazing. But uh, I really wanted the project to just get the conversation started, and hopefully um, we have a way that people can go. They can go to HoustonSoundLibrary.com and they can download any of the sounds. But at the bottom of the page, you can also submit your own sounds to the library. So I'm hoping as the future, in the future, this is a, a living library. We keep adding new sounds to it, just like our library downtown will add new books or um, new magazines or things as, as time goes on. So that's the idea for the project is that it belongs to everybody. Um, and I'm just kind of helping get the conversation started. So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean? You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deal, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part, when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again, never hassle with providers, only deal with Real Simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CityBook, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. How would you say, I'm so curious, how would you say your relationship to this city changed by focusing on those five wards and like going into those places and recording sounds? How did that change your perspective on the city of Houston? Quite a bit. Um, there were just places that that I hadn't been to before. And the um, the ambient noise is so different from from everywhere um, in in different parts of the city. So being able to hear those differences and record different environments, like what does Emancipation Park sound like versus Discovery Green versus um, you know I was in uh, the old historic. Um, sixth ward on it's like Kane street right by Mecca. And that was, that ended up being the quietest place that I recorded. And so just hearing the differences in the, in the ambient sounds that you get, um, the types of objects that you find in those different places really gave me that, that perspective. And, um, I think that, that really having that open mind, to that and exploring all these different areas has come from uh, my teaching as well. So I'm always in new teaching environments. I've taught all over town. I've taught in um, 
you know, in the medical center, I've taught in fifth ward, third ward, so just all over the place. And so I'm constantly in different environments and hearing different things. And it's really um, strengthened my relationship with the city. And and I should also say, you know, when I first moved to Houston, um, thinking I might go to med school, I, um, after about a year and a half, and after deciding I didn't want to go, when I decided I wanted to be a songwriter, I was thinking about leaving Houston entirely because I had done all the open mic spots. I'd done some gigs. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I need to go to Nashville and be a songwriter or I need to go to L.A. or something. But I met a friend who introduced me to the arts uh, events So he was really active with Houston Arts Alliance at the time, and he took me around to some different events. And I started to see that there was a lot more going on to Houston. It's like this um, hidden treasure. You know, you have to know, you really have to know where to look for things. And I think that's a big reason why people are so friendly here, is that when somebody moves here, they immediately want to be your guide and go, okay, here's some things that you need to check out. Because you're not going to leave after a year and say that you don't like Houston um, because you haven't really experienced it yet. So, so that, that was part of my thought going into this project too, is how can we um, give people an idea of just how many different sounds and, and areas there are in Houston. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at EnvoyMortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. Andrew, we only have time for one more question. We've really enjoyed talking with you. I'm wondering now, such a diverse background, so many things you're up to. A lot of it, a lot of it targets kids. I'm wondering what's next, and does it include becoming a dad? <laughs> uh, well, I I won't be becoming a dad. I'm I'm just really not interested in in being a parent. I think it would be really hard for me to to be a parent and do all of the different things that I'm doing. Um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. But, um, yeah, the, I, I do, uh, plan on going deeper into, 
uh, my work in education and in working with kids. So my top priorities right now are um, continuing to build Just Add Beats. So we've added an internship program. We've also done some apprenticeship programs for some of our older high school students where we're helping them either find a job working with a local startup producing their podcast, for example, or how are they going to launch their album or start their own business using the skills that they have. So those those students who are wanting to go deeper with their uh, audio knowledge, we're doing that. And then um, I'm also working on, since we're in this virtual learning space now, I've been converting our in-person Just Add Beats experience to something that can be more virtual, that can be um, exported to other teachers that are interested in digital media or um, production in different schools. So that's something that I'm I'm working on. But my my real mission with all of this with Just Add Beats is focusing on students that are from historically underrepresented and overlooked communities. So that's that's really what I'm focused on now is the social impact side of things, which, um, you know, li- living with grace certainly helps with that. Um, I always have somebody that I can talk to about um, the steps that I'm taking to do that. And, um, and Andy Rue is the similar thing. You know, how does it develop from just being albums to um, being more of an interactive, educational, and entertaining experience. So how, how much more can we develop that world, um, whether that looks like piloting some kind of, um, you know, video web series or, or um, games or apps or, or what kinds of things like that. So I'm really interested in, in all of those things. Um, I'm not interested in pressing any more CDs. I can tell you that because um, they're bad. They're bad for the environment. I am very interested in eco-friendly merchandise um, and understanding how do you make something that is useful for a family. It's just not another thing laying around, but something that that adds to the family experience, but that also allows them to interact with. Um, with the different brands that I'm developing. Living with Grace, that sounds like the name of a great podcast. <laughs> Ours is called City Book and Company. We've been delighted to have Andrew Carnavis here today. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much, Jeff and Luke. I appreciate it. City Book and Company is a production of City Book Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Brauner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America.